WeHelp is supported by Social Work License Map, a simple guide to social work licensure that clarifies the steps needed to become a social worker in your state. WeHelp is not a substitute for professional care. If you have or suspect you may have a health problem, consult your health care provider. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to We Help, the social work podcast bringing you a glimpse into the life of social workers. I'm Marley Wynn. This month, we launched our hashtag We Stand Up Social Workers for Survivors of Sexual Assault campaign. This campaign is to bring a spotlight on the untold stories of social workers, along with the unique impact they have on victims of abuse. Today's episode is phase one of hashtag We Stand Up. Stay with us until the end of the episode to learn more about the second phase of our campaign. Also, just a heads up, Today's episode will be about a story of childhood sexual abuse, so please listen to this at a later time if you have children listening in or if this is a trigger for you. In addition, this story has been altered to protect the identity of the survivor. Annie is a survivor. When I look at Annie, I see my best friend. No, really, today's episode is about my dear friend Annie, who reached out to me about a story she'd like to share with all of you. A good friend who's always thinking about others before herself. A friend who laughs at all of my jokes. A friend that you all probably have. I've asked Josie Torrielli, a licensed clinical social worker from the New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault, specializing in trauma treatment, to help Annie tell us her story of when she realized she was sexually abused and going through recovery with a social worker. Annie is a 24-year-old Asian-American survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Annie, who disclosed her abuse as a child but did not seek counseling until her early 20s, describes her journey toward healing through multiple abusive experiences. Annie's lingering sense of isolation, diminished self-esteem, anger, and self-loathing can be heard throughout her story. As her story unfolds, you'll hear how Annie reclaimed her narrative took her control of her thoughts and feelings, and rediscovered herself as someone deserving and capable of loving life and being loved in return. Annie begins her story by describing a time when she overheard other children in her middle school around 6th to 8th grade joking about rape. I remember I was in middle school, and there were kids joking about rape. Just the word rape. I don't think any of them really knew what rape meant. Just the way that they described it, it seemed like not consensual activity. I always had a feeling that something happened in my childhood, but I just didn't understand it. I just remember looking back and thinking, I think what they're describing as sexual abuse is something that happened to me. And I didn't really understand how that could have happened to me. Um, So then I started thinking about some more, and I I realized, no, yeah, that did happen to me. I was molested as a a child, and I fell into a deep depression. I was in the bathroom stall crying, and I was just depressed. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to deal with my feelings. Mm -hmm. And one of the school counselors came in, and she... She grabbed my hand. She said, you know, what's going on in here? Why are you crying? Because all the girls in my middle school were in the bathroom watching me cry. It was just, yeah, it was kind of embarrassing, but it was also, I think I was crying for help in a way. Like, I I didn't know what to do, so I'm going to cry, and everyone's watching me cry, and someone's forced to do something about it. Uh I was crying. The counselor came in, pulled me, and then took me to her office. Mm -hmm. She sat me down. She said, you know, what's the problem? 
she didn't make it sound like it was a good thing that I was like I was in trouble for crying in the bathroom I kind of just blurted everything out and I said I think I was molested as a child and I told her exactly what happened to me I was playing hide and go seek with other children I was at my mom's best friend's house okay and when we were all playing hide and go seek the little kids and as I was trying to find a place to go hide my mom's best friend's nephew came in and pulled me into his room. Mm-hmm. He didn't go all the way. Mm-hmm. He, you know, tried and someone started knocking on the door. Mm-hmm. And he immediately jumped up and rushed to the door and opened it, but no one was there. He just told me to get out. He's like, "Get oh, just go. Just go. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'm going to go now. I'm going to go play hide and go seek again. Mm-hmm. I think I just started running out the door and I stopped and I just kind of thought, did I just, just do something bad? Cause I think I just didn't make him happy. Oh. Like I didn't play the game right. I don't know what I didn't do right, but I didn't do it right. Right. So then I just continued to play hide and go seek. I was around the first or second grade. Fast forward. I realized in middle school, this is what happened to me. I told right. my counselor and she told me that she legally would have to tell my mother mm-hmm. that I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. And I begged her. I said, you know, please, please don't do this. It's really going to hurt my mother. And I begged her and I begged her. And I was like, please, like, don't tell my mom mm-hmm. because this is going to hurt her. And she's gonna, I don't want her to hurt because of this. She's like, I'm really sorry. It's, I have to do this. So then I thought, you know, we're going in the right direction. Maybe this is something, you know, she's a counselor. She's an adult. I'm in middle school. What do I know? Maybe her mom really does need to know. A week later, they set time up with my mom to come into the school for this meeting. How did you have a sense that your mom wouldn't be able to understand or deal with it? What did you know about your mom at that point? Well, my mom's really strong. My mom doesn't speak English very well, mm-hmm. and I think I was scared that she wouldn't understand what happened to me. Right. I come from a pretty traditional, strict uh, Asian family, and my parents will barely go to the doctor's office. I don't think they would go out of their way to help me find a way to to heal. And so that's kind of where I came up with, please don't tell my mom. Yeah. Because what's my mom going to do? Right. When my mom got the call from my school to go meet my my counselor, she was confused. And I think, well, my mom didn't understand. So she then spoke to my sister Uh and said, any school wants me to go over there. I don't know what it's for, but I have to go there and I have to take off of work. That was another thing I felt bad about, is that mm-hmm. my mom had to take off of work. My sister's freaking out, and she confronts me while my mom is at work. And she says, hey, you know, mom said that you she has a meeting with your school. What is this all about? And I was like, oh, no, nothing. I, I don't know. I think I, had, I made a bad grade or something. Mm-hmm. And my sister's like, no, they wouldn't do that. My sister's older than me. Mm -hmm. And she said, they wouldn't do that. And they said, oh, I don't, I don't know what it is. And she's like, no, you're lying. You're lying. And so I just started crying and I was like, please just leave me alone. 
and I and I remember I, I ran into the bathroom and I locked myself in there. And my sister, she's like, if you don't tell me, I'm going to break all your favorite CDs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, please don't do that. And I remember she broke it and I could hear it on the other side. She slid it underneath the door. And she, it was like my favorite. It was a Mickey Mouse CD at the time. Mm-hmm. And I opened the door and I was like, fine, I'll tell you just to stop. And I told her. Someone molested me when I was a baby. I mean, a child. Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, she said, that's not possible. Who was it? And I told her. I told her exactly who it was. And she said, no, that didn't happen to you. You don't have the symptoms of someone being abused. Mm-hmm. And and you've, hung out, and you've hung around him before, and you didn't act weird. So there's no way that you could have been abused. Mm. I just... I didn't really defend myself. I just kind of said, okay. Yeah. Well, there's really, I mean, there's no defense needed. And that's a really normal response when something happens when you're a child is to think that you did something wrong and to not say anything and to continue as though everything is normal and nothing's changed. Um, Perfectly normal way of coping especially given that you were concerned and kind of it sounds like you were maybe taking care of your family a little bit like I don't want my mom to skip work I don't want my mom to worry I don't want her to not understand right and it turns out your older sister didn't understand or didn't really wasn't able to yeah yeah I love my sister I mean Mm -hmm. we have a great relationship yeah now as an adult but I'll never forget her seeing that to me and we've never talked about it ever since mm-hmm. we've never ever talked about the abuse and neither my mom my mom and i after that meeting with the counselor uh so yeah my mom met with the counselor she came to my school and there, there was a translator there mm-hmm. to help out actually. Right. did that was that helpful i really don't know because i wasn't there for that part my uh-huh. the translator was in the room with my mother and I was outside. And when it came to the time where they were done telling my mother about it, mm-hmm. I came in and my mom looked at me. The only question I can remember her asking me was, who was it? And I told her, and she said, why didn't, why didn't you tell me? I was just like, I didn't, I didn't know how to tell you. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that it's not, it's not, easy to translate i don't even know how to translate that in our language what am i supposed to do just go up to my mom one day and say hey i was taken advantage of by your best friend's nephew right well that's i mean that's an answer right there right um but i'm wondering about you know after your mom found out you know um i know you said you never spoke about it again was that kind of immediate or do you remember any impacts of her knowing or the only impact of my mom knowing is me feeling more depressed than I was before I think I would have loved myself way sooner even in high school when I got to the age where I knew that I could go to see therapy on my own Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to see a therapist because I felt really betrayed by the um, counselor who in, in middle school, in middle school mm-hmm. when I told her what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And had I known that she was going to go tell my mom, I wouldn't have said anything at all. 
I, I would have never told her. No, actually, I did continue to see her even after that meeting with my mom. I went to her off- Because you wanted to or because- Because I wanted to. Okay. I, I wanted to see her and I wanted to talk to her. You know, I remember I was, I was so depressed. I was a very unhappy child. I was that kid who, like, wanted to commit suicide. And my mom couldn't do anything to save me. And I felt it was bad because I I was mad at her. I was so mad because I just wanted someone to help me. I wanted someone to help me understand what happened to me as a child. I wanted answers, you know? And I couldn't find that in my school counselor because... My school counselor, when I saw her a couple of weeks after she told my mom, mm-hmm. I went to her and I thought, I said, you know, Mrs. Taylor, I'm pretty sure I'm depressed and I'm not happy and I don't want to eat. I don't want to wake up. I barely have enough energy to do my own homework. And she looked at me and she said, Annie, you aren't depressed. You're just sad. Depressed is a very strong word and you're not that. And I just lost it. I never wanted to see a therapist or a counselor or anything of that nature ever again. Because I felt that she betrayed me when she told my mom. Right. Had she told me she was going to tell my mom, I would have never told her anything. Mm-hmm. And I still feel that way. And I, and I understand, even as an adult, why she had to tell my mom. Sure. I imagine you also felt somewhat tricked. Oh like, yes. Like I'm Definitely. telling you this. So how are you how are you doing right now as we're as we're talking about all this? I'm gonna check in and see. Honestly, whenever I'm telling my story, I'm always thinking about the moment where I'm gonna start crying. And I'm very cautious about that. I like when you know, I always cry at different moments when I tell this story. Yeah. When I talk about my mom, I get really emotional. Mm-hmm. Or when I talk about my sister, you know, because I feel bad that I'm angry. Because I, I love them and we have a great relationship. And it's weird to say that if we've never talked about my childhood sexual abuse, even though they mean so much to me. Sometimes, you know, what I, what, and I'm, I've noticed, you know, at certain points that you have gotten tearing that's been about your family. And, and that's not surprising. You know, I think sometimes it's helpful when we have mixed feelings about the people in our lives is to think about, you know, as an adult, you can understand why your mom and your sister had the responses that they did, right? You can understand that maybe your sister was scared and angry and didn't know what to do. Your mom didn't really understand. Or a lot of times in families, things like abuse are not talked about. Anything sexual, actually, not talked about, right? So as an adult, you can understand those reactions. But as that seventh grader, you needed someone to help you. And so there's these two parts of you you can understand and you love and you know cherish those relationships but there's still that part of you that was a kid that was really young yeah it's unfortunate that i i never got that help until i went to college well so tell me i know that you said you got you you became very depressed and that you attempted suicide right and was that still in middle school that was in middle school but can i just actually did not kind of just stop and instead of being depressed as I grew older I started to kind of not take care of my body I didn't really know anyone here I was depressed I was trying to fit in you know one of those lost souls trying to find their way out and then 
you know, I was really destructive. I really didn't care about myself. I mean, I was a confident person, but I also really didn't care about anything I ever did. I cared more about someone wanting me than the actual act. Right. I think I thrived on men wanting me mm-hmm. and me satisfying them. Right. And I thought that's what my that's in all these things that I do, that's where my worth comes from. Yeah. And when that became a pattern in my life as I grew older. Mm-hmm. I had this moment I was with someone and I remember just laying there and looking at the ceiling. It didn't feel like I was there. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like a tear rolling down my eye mm-hmm. and me just thinking, boy, do I wish I was not here. I don't think I'm supposed to be here. I hate what I'm doing to myself. I hate what I'm doing to my life. Right. After that, that was the first time I ever remembered that I was also abused at my daycare when I was an adult. Because mm. I just remember the moment that, that happened to me as an adult, it's like I had a flashback. I remember laying on the floor at my daycare and looking at the bedpost. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's weird. I think something happened to me. It was a lot of things going on in one night, and I, when it came down to it, I realized that I, I needed to see help. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like there were these parts of you that were, like, one part of you that was saying, like, I need this needs to stop. I need to get help. I need to heal. And this other part of you saying, it doesn't matter. Who cares? I'm not worth it. Yeah. And then at the same time, having this realization, like, well, now I'm working with not just you know, what happened when I was playing hide and seek, but then something that was possibly earlier. Exactly. And having that come back very boldly and vividly, it sounds like that kind of flash of understanding. Yeah? Yes, exactly. That's kind of what leaned me towards seeing help because I realized, okay, this isn't just like you described one incident. It happened to you more than once. And through therapy have actually learned that it's happened to me more than twice Mm. through different people and in no way related to each other Mm. like my no none of these people knew each other at all okay Okay. let's let's i mean i want to talk about that but i also want to kind of so how did you get from that moment kind of where you said like this has to stop how did you find help how did you find a counselor or someone to help you well, first of all, I was abused by my mom's best friend's nephew. Then I was realized I was abused by other children. Then I realized I was abused by a family member, all in an adult age, all around the same time. Mm-hmm. And the only way that I could be sane or what felt like normal to me was I, I Googled and I found like a therapist and I started seeing a social worker who was right by my university was very hesitant of course but it was at that time where I was crying every single day and I was depressed and I was going through the same thing in middle school and I was tired of being angry towards therapy mm-hmm. you know I was I was like obviously none of these other things are working out for you um these are not the best choices so maybe you should talk to someone and give it one shot and if this person you're gonna see makes you feel uncomfortable then walk out because it's your choice So I started seeing a social worker, and I remember 
just walking in and crying. And, and she was like, are you okay? I was like, I'm fine. I just, I need to cry for like five seconds mm-hmm. and then we can go into it. And she was like, that's good with me. I, I mean, I kind of blurted out everything and I told her everything. And she was like, I want you to know that, you know, I appreciate you telling me this. And she was like, but you have a choice now to talk about it, to come and, you know, express yourself. And that's a very strong move. And you should be proud of yourself for that. Mm-hmm. And I think you should give yourself credit because I don't think you are. She said, my job is to be here for you and we're going to do it together. What was that like for you to hear that? You know, what she did was what my I wanted my mom to do. She told me everything that I wanted my mom to say to me was, I'm here for you and we're going to get through this together. And you're not alone, which is the most important thing, I guess. And um, she told me everything that I didn't want to hear and everything I wanted to hear. She told me the things like, you you did this alone and you are strong. And I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want her to tell me that I was strong. And I didn't want her to say things like, it wasn't entirely right that your mom didn't do something. She said, I understand why you're protecting your mom, but you need to say that it wasn't 100% correct. Right. And so she taught me how to love myself again. I don't know for how long I didn't love myself, but for the first time I felt like there's something worth living for because of her. And when I saw her, I realized, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm going to fight this, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to get through this with her. So I just want to start by kind of talking through Annie's story and and the things that she shared. And what really stands out to me for Annie's story is her reclaiming the narrative. Um, And someone who over and over again realized that she needed help and was crying out for that help and that she eventually found it. Um, And as we said at the beginning of her story, I think the work of any survivor of of trauma, but particularly of sexual violence, is creating a narrative where the things that happened and the abuse that happened are not the only part of the person and not certainly the most important part, but just one of the parts of them that certainly shape who they are, but doesn't define who they are. So when we're thinking about Annie's story, you know, what I'm thinking about is kind of all these points and all these moments where she realized that something had happened and her simultaneously having those moments of realization and not knowing what to do with those things and not understanding really what they meant and then also unfortunately not getting the help that she needed at that point or at those points from the adults who were in her life. You know, one of the things that I found kind of most striking is that when she did finally tell someone, when she told and when she shared her experience of what had happened to her while she was playing hide and seek, the person who did that, the nephew, 
was entirely out of the conversation. So Annie felt like she was responsible, felt like she did something wrong. Annie's mother felt very sad, felt like she failed in some way, felt like she failed to protect her daughter. The school counselor, you know, felt like she needed to tell and maybe didn't know what to do beyond that point. And the person who was left out of that story was the person who actually perpetrated the abuse. And I think that's a really common theme when we're working with trauma and especially when we're working with sexual violence is that there's a lot of focus on the person who experiences the abuse or experiences the violence. And there's not so much of a focus on the person who perpetrates it. He was entirely left out of that conversation. Um, Annie and her mother took on all of those feelings of blame and all of those feelings of responsibility for what had happened to her, rather than the blame being on that person, the person who did it, the person who did something wrong. And I think, you know, Annie's journey talks about being able to get to a place where she realizes that it wasn't her fault and that she didn't do anything wrong and that she was worth being heard and being loved and being understood and being listened to. So, you know, I think one of the important factors is, you know, when I'm working with someone who's experienced violence is to always think about the perpetrator and always putting the blame for what happened on that person because it's not the person who experienced the abuse. It's not their fault and it's not their responsibility even though it sometimes feels that way because of the work of healing and the work of recovery. And I think in general, what we need to do when we're looking at this from kind of a wider lens is think about the narratives that we talk about when we talk about victimization. Often when something happens, we're asking people why or what were you doing or why did you choose to go out or why did you trust that person? When really the questions that we should be asking are, Why does that person perpetrate? Why does that person choose to abuse someone? Not asking questions about the victim, not asking questions, but asking questions of the perpetrator. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that's going to get us to a place where we're actually solving the issue is if we can shift our focus from victims and from asking about their actions to figuring out perpetrators and 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 delving into their actions so that's you know that's kind of the first thing that I'm that I'm thinking about the other thing that I'm thinking about is that act of disclosure and it's such a brave thing for someone to choose to share their story with you and particularly in this case with Annie where she had experiences a lot of experiences where when she told there wasn't an appropriate response. And having gone through those experiences and then trusting the social worker whom she eventually found who did listen to her and did believe her and did say to her, you're not alone, we're in this together and we're going to help you heal. It's an incredibly brave thing to name it and to say it and to trust that that information and that story is going to be handled in a way that's healing. So really what I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about how young a 7th or 8th grader is and a 7th and 8th grader having that realization that something happened and something isn't right 
and telling as an act of I need help, I need someone to to listen and notice and engage and you know and help me. And then thinking about when that help didn't come. And I have to wonder about Annie is sharing that experience and then not having anyone attend to what happened and having it just kind of put away and never discussed again. My guess is that it almost made it feel that it was unreal. Like, did this really happen? Because I did say, and it's a huge thing, but no one's taking action. No one's doing anything. I think one of the other things that I was thinking about is just where to start. You know, when you have someone that tells you about an experience that they've had, whether it's recent or whether it's something that happened a long time ago, as, as it did for Annie, what do you do? How do you respond? How can you help that person the best? And I think, you know, the first thing that I always think about is to start by believing. Start from a place of believing and start from a place of trying to figure out what's going to best help the person that's talking with you. And I think every survivor's pathway to healing is different. Everyone has kind of their own route to take and their own way of discovering. And I think, you know, one of the roles that I think about as a clinical social worker is, you know, when I'm working with someone in in therapy is my role is a marathon coach. Um, recovery and healing takes a long time. And I'm there by that person's side as they embark upon that journey and upon that path. I can't run the race for them. And I shouldn't try to because I don't want to take away any more of their control or any more of their power. And I have this huge respect for people who are running that race, so to speak. But my job is to be there and to support. And I think oftentimes, you know, my role is to both be in that place where the survivor is. So recognize how they're feeling and not try to change that or fix that. Um, But to recognize that there is anger and there is grief and there is hurt and there is pain. and And to just be in those feelings with the person. And at the same time, to retain a hopefulness that things will not always feel that way and that healing and recovery are possible. And so it's sometimes this very delicate balancing act where, you know, I want to be in the moment and I have to resist the urge to want to fix things and to make people feel better. And sometimes realizing that people just need to be where they are. And at the same time, you know, for both me and and the survivors that I work with, we have to retain hope. We have to know that healing is possible. We have to know, as with Annie, that she got to this place where she realized she was worth healing. She was worth loving. She was worth recovery. And we have to know that those things are possible because if we don't, then treatment, it, it doesn't go well. And You know, I think that's sometimes the hardest thing for survivors and for therapists to work with is realizing and retaining that hopefulness and knowing that that healing is possible. I think the first place to start is to establish this relationship with the person that you're working with and realizing that sometimes it takes time for the person to feel comfortable and it's okay for them not to feel entirely comfortable 
right from the start. It's okay to have boundaries around what information they want to share and what they want to keep private. And that's, I think, respecting those limits and respecting those boundaries is really important. It's especially important when you're working with someone who survived childhood abuse because we're working in a situation where those boundaries haven't been respected. And then the other thing is to look at the person's current life. What are the impacts of what happened? What's going on currently? What's bringing them into treatment? What symptoms or what are they experiencing every day? And for Annie, you know, some of it was dissociation and maybe not feeling present. And um, my guess is maybe that the dissociation was happening at other points in her day and maybe making her feel like she wasn't engaged really with her life. Another, you know, another point that came up for Annie was she was having kind of these flashes of memory where she suddenly was realizing what happened. And so, you know, the initial work of treatment would be to think about how do we want to cope with those really intrusive symptoms of trauma and those more passive symptoms of trauma. How can we help Annie feel more present and engaged in her daily life or when she's feeling like she's transported back to that place? How can we get her into the present moment in a way that's non-threatening and in a way that's helpful? And then also to think about, you know, the other parts of her life. Is she, you know, does she have resources? Does she have a supportive network of friends, family? Does she have a faith community? Does she have a stable work environment? Does she have stability in terms of housing and income and all those needs, right? So thinking about kind of the day-to-day things, and I think one of the one of the things that you know to think about as a social worker is the things that we think might be obvious are so important so starting by discussing you know are you sleeping enough how's your sleep are you eating regularly are you not eating at all or are you overeating are you exercising are you moving your body right so those kind of basic things that can really impact the way we're feeling physically and emotionally are really important And then I think once we are, you know, once we're thinking about resourcing and stability, then kind of moving on to processing, making meaning of what happened, defining that narrative, turning it in, turning it from something that happened to someone to to something that that occurred that wasn't that person's fault and figuring out what the meaning of it is or what the meaning has been made. And, you know, I think one of the things that's that's most common is survivors of trauma, and in particular survivors of sexual trauma, find a way to make what happened their fault every single time. And if we don't address that as clinicians, if we don't talk about those messages of self-blame that are coming both externally and internally, we're never going to get to the part, the healing. And, you know, oftentimes when I, um, when I talk with people about, well, how do I convey that? How do I do that? It's not as simple as saying it's not your fault, right? It's about really diving in. And I think sometimes people are afraid to, to dive into that. So if someone's saying like, I was so stupid or I'm bad or I'm to blame, really saying, well, like, let's look at what that means. When you're saying you feel stupid, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that feeling. 
let's talk about what you think was stupid about what you did, right? And I think a lot of times people think that directly talking about that is going to make it worse. In actuality, I think of it as an opening. And really the way that I think of it is, is if someone's coming to you and saying, oh, I feel so stupid. And if right away you jump in with a message of it's not your fault, it feels confrontational. And when you're really getting in there and taking that risk and exploring the different ways which the person has made what happened to them their fault, it's it's opening for both of you. And it's a way of being curious and exploring while really getting to kind of the, the particular tone and the particular way that that's been created for people. I think the other thing that I notice about doing this work is um, just the overall reluctance for people to talk about sexual violence. And one of the things that I really strongly believe in is that only by sharing our stories or sharing or, or creating dialogue around this issue, it's really the only way that we're going to decrease the shame um, and um, the isolation that survivors feel. If we make it okay to talk about these things, people will feel less alone. And I see it with the people that I work with when they name that they're a survivor, that the people in their lives don't know how to respond. And so often then the response becomes to either not talk about it anymore or unfortunately sometimes to say the wrong thing. And, you know, I think it's hurtful because silence increases shame. There's a favorite quote that I have talking about, you know, my silence began to take on the rusty taste of shame. And so staying silent, you know, when it doesn't feel like an option anymore, naming it and talking about it is a way of healing. And I experience it even when people ask what kind of social work I do or what I specialize in. And, you know, I've worked in this field for over 12 years and the responses that I get are, oh, I could never do that, Um, you must be an angel, or people immediately want to change the subject. So it's this very interesting kind of parallel response to being a survivor of sexual violence is working with it. I get the same kind of responses that people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it, or they kind of misinterpret or, or think about, oh, you must be some sort of hero or angel. And I think sometimes I do feel like a hero, (laughs) but more often than not, you know, what I'm really thinking about is how can we enhance and increase the narratives? How can we make sure that when survivors tell their stories that we're listening and that we're responding in a way that's kind? And certainly if you do hear someone's story and you do get that information, it's not your job to, to cure them of what's going on, but just by simply starting where Annie's first social worker started, by saying, you're not alone, we're in this together, we're going to get through this, and I'm going to be here with you. And that can make a world of difference to someone who's experienced this hurt. And so I think the best thing that we can do is remind people that they're not alone. So the other thing I think is important for people to know is that there's help available. And that's not just for people who have recently experienced sexual violence, but for someone like Annie who, you know, had had experiences in her childhood and then was able to locate help and care. 
So I think a lot of times people, you know, if it's something that just happened, are often afraid about, if I seek help for this, what does it mean? And I need to let people know that there's help available, and in New York City, that help is free. So anyone can go into a hospital emergency department, and they can receive medical care for something that happened to them. And that medical care is free. And there are actually centers that are designated in New York City that are specialized to help people that have experienced sexual assault. So they can meet with a sexual assault forensic examiner who's a medical provider who has special training in working with people who experienced rape. They can also meet with a social worker and a volunteer advocate. And so this can help connect with resources. And I think what a lot of people um, think is that if they go to an emergency department, that that means they need to report or they need to tell, they need to engage the criminal legal process. And that's not the case. There are no mandatory reporting. There's nothing that needs to be reported for an adult who's experienced sexual assault. You can go to a hospital, you can receive medical care, which I think is a really important first step to healing. The other part of it is being connected to resources. So being able to be connected to a rape crisis program, to a counselor that can help with both the practical and then the emotional things that happen after an assault. The other thing to realize is that the rape crisis programs that are in the city do offer free services and counseling for people who have experienced events from a long time ago. So for example, I'm working with a 94-year-old survivor right now who experienced sexual violence when she was a child. And, you know, so that help is available and it's also free of charge. And you do not need to be a patient of the hospital. So, I, you know, I think it's important for people to know that there are resources and there are, there are avenues toward healing that are available, that are free, and that just involve being where the person is and, and figuring out what their best journey is and what their path is. Our podcast today was produced by me, Arlie Wynn, audio editing by brownbootedbeats.com, music by Quilt, Frank MJ, and Edo333. Special thanks to the special projects team at 2U, Brian Childs, Blair Gardner, and Jeremy Divinity. For phase two of hashtag we stand up, we will be releasing 10 short stories written by social workers who specialize in sexual abuse, describing why they decided to go into that particular field and the rewarding moments they have while in it. Visit socialworklicensemap.com to get updated on when the stories will be released.